I think that we always have to be mindful that there are some people that work well alone uh, without supervision and without the benefit of interaction with the team. And there are others who really prefer to have that group thought. Dearest listeners, hello from lockdown land. How on earth are you all? Where are you listening from? And what does this new world look like from where you are standing? How are you managing personally or at work, school, university, college, etc.? I'll start. Four weeks or so ago, we threw our bags into the car at one o'clock in the morning, under a starry night and drove to a hospital. It was time to meet our baby. And after a few hours of spontaneous labour, with our face masks firmly in place, I had my planned caesarean section. It's been a long old journey, so we are all delighted that he is finally here. Thanks for all the messages of goodwill on Twitter, and do bear with me if I sound especially hazy for a few weeks. We're homeschooling, looking after a baby, and remote working in the strangest experiment ever. What else? The EdTech podcast recently celebrated its fourth birthday. In that time, we've produced 192 episodes with 47 in the past year and over 2,000 downloads averaged each week. These episodes have covered everything from creative computing to online pedagogy and EdTech trends. We have had many alive podcasts recording around the world, our own EdTech podcast festival in 2018 and six different series commissions with another in the pipeline. If you've helped support us along the way, thank you and we hope to continue what we started with ever more content and community to come. Now, earlier in the year, we asked listeners how they thought coronavirus might change teaching and learning and remote work. A few weeks down the line and we are very much in the thick of it with more lessons learnt. So how have things developed? You called in to tell us how things have been going. Here's Ed from NewTech to kick off. Hi Sophie, the first week was really hard. Kids saw this time at home as a vacation and they didn't want to do the packets that were sent. And so I had to shift my focus from focusing on the curriculum to focusing on their attitudes and their values. Uh, and so now I'm, I'm doing great because I try to first connect everything to their interests. If they're really interested in pirates or they're really interested in ninjas, I try to relate everything that I teach them uh, related to, to connect to those interests. Uh, so, for example, with pirates, I will talk about cardinal directions and we'll try to solve some pirate problems. For ninjas, sometimes even when we're we're doing things like folding clothes, we'll pretend that they're like a board that needs to be chopped. So they're learning that they really need deep knowledge in order to be creative. And they're also learning that they can be creative with any task. And if we can just accomplish that in this time that we have together, I think it's going to be really, really productive for the rest of their lives. Thanks again. Hi, Sophie. It's Cameron. I uh, love your article, and I hope you and the um, new um, newborn are doing really well. I'm also loving this 90s throwback uh, voicemail. My reflections are, you know, <laughs> that um, 
this is a great chance to reimagine society and you know it makes us realize how interconnected we all are i think for me the key thing is equity you've already alluded it alluded to it in your article this is about the rise of uh, of people who work on the front line uh, the teachers the nurses the doctors the people who are you know the people who stack shelves at sainsbury's the people who work at the pharmacy counter uh, and you know bringing them to prominence and and giving them the, the platform in terms of their role and status in society. And I think that's really important. I think you made a great point about expertise. We need more expertise and greater, greater expertise than ever before. And I really hope that it provides a catalyst for more young people to focus on STEM education and really, you know, be the kind of um, the, the, the leaders for frontier technology and science and technology, because that's where ultimately we're going to get the um, the breakthroughs of vaccines, um, and, and hopefully put an end uh, or shorten these these type of pandemics. Um, and that's it for me. This is Nancy speaking from Brussels, Belgium. Um, the crisis is lasting longer than anyone expected. It has raised issues that were already present in the higher education landscape, um, such as student recruitment, assessment mental health, distance learning, and interaction. This subject will have to be rethought, in my opinion. And uh, at Book Club, we were really busy supporting academics to stay connected to their students while hosting sessions on various video conferencing platforms. Our goal being mainly to integrate into the existing learning environment to avoid overwhelming either professors or students. It was quite a challenging few weeks that we have, and we are looking forward to what next academic year is going to bring. We have, of course, seen a really handful of interesting um, solutions going around around the, the network, so... Looking forward to what next year has to bring. Hi, it's Martin Hamilton from martinh.net here. I've been working with a group of volunteer teachers and edtech experts to document their experiences of the shift to remote learning. You can read our report, Protecting Learning, at homelearninguk.com. Um, massive kudos to Caroline Keep and Ty Goddard for coordinating this and to everyone who contributed. It's a fantastic piece of work that will hopefully ensure lessons are learned about what worked in the frantic period at the start of the COVID-19 lockdown. Now, I'm an EdTech nerd and I could talk for hours about the relative merits of live streaming versus pre-recorded videos, whether webcams should be switched on or backgrounds blurred. But it's become obvious that this is only a small part of the jigsaw puzzle that is remote learning. There's a massive amount of what I would call sneaker net tech going on, involving a teacher driving around the community to distribute handouts and worksheets to disadvantaged learners who don't have access to broadband internet or a device of their own. And this is just as much about well-being as it is about continuity of learning. We hear that as many as a fifth of the UK's children happen to be getting three square meals a day, and the role that schools play in keeping our children safe and well can't be underestimated. A quick update from Flash Academy HQ during the pandemic. Our biggest concern at the moment is the growing education divide that is forming for disadvantaged children. 
a lot of our support is focused on pupils with EAL and we're consistently seeing that they are a group that are least likely to have access to hardware, Wi-Fi and tailored resources from their own home language at a level that is right for them. We're working with hundreds of schools and around 60,000 pupils across the UK, China and Italy to support their students with EAL to learn more independently, supporting teachers who are working hard to ensure their students are engaged and progressing. With parents also trying to work from home, there's often a lack of devices available, so it's important that perhaps a child can learn on a phone or an iPad as well as a laptop or a PC in addition to their learning on paper. We've added over 20,000 new pupils to the Flash Academy platform free of charge over the last four weeks. And we've also seen our range of over 400 free resources downloaded over 4,000 times, which has been brilliant. We're working closely with schools, trusts, local authorities and the Cabinet Office to do everything we can to support pupils with the AL or literacy needs at this time. Please do visit us at flashacademy.com to download our free resources or to gain access to a free trial of the Flash Academy platform for your students. Hi Sophie, it's Neil Mosley here. Yeah, it's been a really interesting time to say the least since uh, I was last on. I think speaking positively, there's a much greater awareness of online education and the research that validates it. There's a much greater awareness of the kind of research-based effective practices that underpin that and I think that can only be a good thing that will help improve the online education uh, that we've had to date which um, in pockets could be improved I think uh, it'll also kind of set a good platform for um, future development of online education we don't know what the what the size of that's going to be it's hard to predict that I think the interesting thing for me is really the narrative around September uh, for universities and the fact that the online provision is going to need to be much higher quality um, than the emergency remote teaching that we've seen so far. But I think what universities are realising is that there's a lot involved in creating really high quality online education. There's little experience amongst educators of teaching online. There's little support available in terms of learning designers and instructional designers to support that. Um, and it changes the way the university operates a little bit as well. So even though good practice is more widely known, the challenge to create high quality courses um, you know, is going to be very difficult to meet. So universities really need to go through this prioritisation exercise to really create the minimum viable experience. Thanks also to Scott Wood for dropping us a note about his new book on automated scoring and AI. Hi folks, my name is Scott Wood and I'm the Associate Director of Machine Scoring for ECT. I help to produce algorithms that assign scores to essays like a human reader would. We call this automated essay scoring or AES for short. Tech is a wonderful enabler of ease and efficiency, and modern advances in artificial intelligence have allowed us to quickly find trends in data. Critics of AI point to a number of issues, AI's validity compared to human interventions, its potential to magnify unconscious bias, not to mention algorithms and models that look like a complicated black box to the outsider looking in. How do data scientists convey the advantages of AI while addressing potential criticisms? I write about this problem for a new handbook on automated essay scoring. In it, I share how concern over reliability, validity, bias, and the unknown can be alleviated with a healthy dose of communication and education. 
Through transparent sharing of how these AES models and systems are made, the non-data scientists can come to understand and appreciate the benefits of AES to relevant stakeholders, including students, educators, and policymakers. This is my version of marrying ed and tech through storytelling. You can learn more about AES by picking up a copy of the Handbook of Automated Scoring Theory into Practice and by following my colleagues and I on Twitter using the handle at ACTNext. Talking of books, I've been busy reading the Hilary Mantel trilogy of books about Wolf Hall, Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell which have some very timely reminders about social anxiety around various plagues and sweating sicknesses, as well as early examples of what we would now call 21st century skills and portfolio careers as demonstrated through the mercurial Thomas Cromwell. Definitely recommended reading for these times. Continuing on the same theme, this week's VocTech podcast episode, supported by UFI VocTech Trust, is all about how economies and industry are transitioning into a new world of work. This episode was recorded with Jay Notes from Working Nation last year. We talk about everything from massive investment in training employees, how working cultures are not interchangeable, and supporting each other through immense change all subjects which have been thrust into the foreground by coronavirus in a way which has made us sit up and listen much more urgently than any discussion on automation did before. Indeed, whilst most eyes were on massive societal change coming from automation, robotics and AI, it is striking that that the thing which has brought mass unemployment, systems overhaul and industry shake-up is at its very heart biological, that is to say a virus working on a cellular and not a coded level. With these thoughts in mind, listen in and do get in touch with how this episode made you think about our current climbs. Right, I'm off to change a nappy. Okay, wonderful. So um, I'm delighted to have uh, Jay Notes, President at Working Nation on the line. So welcome, Jane. Hi, Sophie. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, what time is it where you are? It is 9 a.m. here on the East Coast in the United States. Okay, that's perfectly respectable time, not too early. It's exactly right. <laughs> okay, um, well, Jane, um, I first came across your work when I was reading the article uh, in the Washington Post on Amazon spending, uh, I think it was 800 million or allocating 800 million US dollars towards reskilling a third of their workforce and you were quoted in that article so I came intrigued about your work and we connected. Um, I wondered for our listeners whether you might be able to sort of expand a little bit on what that article was about and your contribution uh, towards it as well. Sure Um, well you know it was a pretty amazing announcement for an employer the size and scope of Amazon to say that they were not only going to invest the $800 million in reskilling incumbent workers, but the most interesting part for me was that they were not necessarily doing it to get them jobs within their own company. So yes, they were going to have 
uh, some workers trained with automation so that they could meet the demands of Amazon as they augmented jobs with new technology. But they were also going to pay for people to become things like nurses, uh, jobs in demand here in the United States. And that was the first time for me, and I've been in this business a long time, it was the first time for me that I saw an employer actively paying for training for someone to leave the company. That's really interesting. And and what do you think the motivation for that is? Is it sort of financial motivation or or is it in terms of uh, preventing against libel in the future? I'm just interested to sort of know where you think they're coming from on that front. Yeah, and and really, Sophie, this would be totally my opinion, not based Mm. on any inside knowledge about Amazon. But I certainly think they see in the future because they're, you know, a warehouse-based company, that technology will uh, eliminate some job titles in the near Mm. or distant future, and probably near is a better thing. So as drones become able to lift heavy packages in a warehouse, there will no longer be the need to have those workers. So going back to why they would do it, I I think uh, it shows that they have... Uh, a real conscience about they've made a commitment to workers that they may not going to they may not be able to hold true to in the future. Very I think it's good corporate citizenry. Mm, so it's almost like a part of their CSR activities as they go forward. That's exactly right, and doing it within the company, which, quite frankly, I don't think is such a bad idea. Um, when we spoke previously, uh, two things that you talked about really stood out to me. Um, the first was that. Our working situations nowadays are sort of completely multi-generational in a way that perhaps they weren't previously. Um, and the second was that um, as we reskill employees who perhaps are sort of in some of our more transition economies, um, we've also got to think about and respect the working culture that they were coming from um, as we sort of think about reskilling them into future work. And I just wondered if you could expand on a couple of those points as well. So the the multi-generational one and then thinking about the actual differences in working cultures that are out there as well. Sure. Look, I, I think for us in the United States, it's the first time ever in our history that we've had five generations working side by side in the workplace. And this presents amazing opportunities for intergenerational learning and intergenerational teaming so that people can get a market look at what appeals to an, a 19-year-old and what appeals to a mm. 70-year-old in the same time frame. But it also presents some different challenges. So I think when we spoke, we talked specifically about, you know, uh, people that are that have been in the workforce have a great respect for the framework in which they've worked in the past. So For many, it was the shift. You know, you work seven to three, you work nine to five, whatever it was, and you were at your workstation ready to go as the clock struck on your first hour. Even if you didn't punch a time clock, you were still very cognizant of the fact that your workday began at this specific time. 
for younger workers, uh, many of them, you know, their their mantra is get the job done. If they want to do it on a flexible a flexible time schedule, as long as they can get the job done, they feel like they're doing the job. So what would that mean? It would mean that, you know, as a 60-year-old uh, goes to a job that, that starts at 9 o'clock, they get their coffee at 8.30, they have their coffee, their computer's on, they're ready to go. For a new gen worker, they may come in at nine and, you know, go get their coffee and come back and start working and not take a break and get the job done almost at the same time, if not before the person who, you know, thought they were being very timely and getting on task at nine. So I think that you can, you can imagine, and I think your listeners, as you think through this, think about what happens in that kind of situation. People are very judgmental. People get angry. All of that puts new uh, kind of dynamics on the workplace. And I think, you know, that's just a very minimal example, but you can imagine the use of technology, listening to people, taking notes during a meeting, making eye contact instead of looking at your device. These are Mm -hmm. things that I'm hearing Mm -hmm. all the time from people in human resources that, you know, they have to work to get team members to understand each other's work and learning style. And that bleeds right into what you're talking about. So that if you're going to give me the opportunity to get more skills so that I can qualify for another job on the workplace or get the skills to do my current job better, that same dynamic is going to be in play. The the person who's more traditional in their learning style is going to want set times to do it, uh, to meet the criteria, to meet the competencies. They're going to want to kind of show you that they're at that learning place. Whereas the person who's non-traditional in their approach may do it on their own time and, and want to come in and show you that they've met the competencies in a very different way. Yeah, I think we were talking previously as well about the an example you'd heard of at, at an event that you'd been to recently with um, with sort of uh, previous people that were working in mining and, and how sort of collegiate and collaborative and, and sort of, you know, working in a team that role is and then perhaps trying to place them in uh, any job isn't always going to work because they're used so much to work being something that you do together. That's right. I mean, we the the example that I gave you was coal miners in eastern Kentucky, one of our rich coal mining states that has been impacted uh, by the closures of the mines because of the move from fossil fuels. And people with good intentions went in and said, well, we can hire them to come in uh, and do office work if they want to move. There were no jobs in eastern Kentucky except really mining. Uh, and then they said, or they could work remotely from their home. But for these miners, they, you know, ranged in age from 20 to 60, and they had always worked in a cohort. They had always been on a team of miners. So what the people did is absolutely trained them in coding. Uh, They became excellent coders. Uh, But what they did is they used an abandoned facility. They They revamped it, you know, put the technology they needed to in it, an old warehouse. And they now go into that warehouse 
else and work in teams doing the coding, but they have the camaraderie, Mm. they see their friends, they have that sense of community. They were not ready to be remote workers or gig workers. You know, they, they wanted that teamwork. And I think that's something that, that, as I said, with those miners span different generations. I think that we always have to be mindful that there are some people that work well alone uh, without supervision and without the benefit of interaction with the team. And there are others who really prefer to have that group thought, you know, that idea where people can constantly be looking at my work and giving me ideas and I can do the same thing with them. Yeah, I love that example. In your own work at Working Nation, um, what are some of your current collaboration projects? What kind of things do you get to work on? You know, we have such we have such a wonderful mission. Working Nation was founded only three years ago right. to really tell the stories of local solutions. And we do that through live events and video, but you can imagine how wonderful it is to just go into communities and look to see how they are solving the talent problems, how they are getting young people to prepare for the careers that are in demand in their region, how how local areas are really working with employers to figure out in real time what the skills are that they need and revamping their curriculum if they're a school or a nonprofit to really reflect those new skills. It's just, it's just so exciting because so often you hear just the negative stories, mm. you know, you hear the layoffs, you hear the stores closing and, and we hear that all the time here, you know, in retail and manufacturing, the shrinking of jobs, but we also learn that technology is bringing such new opportunity, new job titles, new ways to make lots of money, you know, doing hopefully something that you liked or loved as much as what you were moved from. So going and finding those stories about the new connections and how places are really hitting the mark on that. What could be better, right? What I have the best job in the world. I love it. I love it. And you mentioned technology there. So, you know, this podcast series is all about exploring, you know, adult education, future of work. Um, So whether that means corporate training or vocational learning in in colleges, but it's quite broad, but it's all about, you know, that side, adult education and how it intersects with technology. So I just wondered in, in your work, what you see the role of technology being in some of those training programs. Well, you know, I think it's a wonderful opportunity for all of us globally to take advantage of what technology can offer and not be a victim of it, not Mm -hmm. feel like uh, technology is going to take away my job. But in other words, how is technology going to augment my job? You know, some of the cool things that we're seeing, I mean, uh, we didn't talk about this, but I'll throw this at you, Sophie, Mm -hmm. Uh, the idea of digital twins. Uh, digital twins is a simulation tool that's really evolving. It's it's pretty new, uh, but think about it. It makes a simulated image of a living or non-living thing. So think about that in in as we use, for instance, green energy. You know, how do you make sure that the the turbine that you're building is going to be able to withstand both the high wind times and the low wind times. Well, through a simulation, through a digital twin, you can really test that out without 
expending the money in the consumable goods to build something and then figure out the the blades weren't big enough. And for me, uh, turn that back on healthcare, which I think is a sector that's that's going to be so positively impacted by technology. Think about if you could make a digital twin of yourself, a simulation that really looked real time at your systems and organs when you were undergoing either radiation or chemotherapy for a cancer treatment. Think about that, that that simulation could really see what would be the impact of a dose of chemotherapy on your other non-affected internal organs. So while it was killing the cancer cells, what was it doing to healthy cells and healthy systems? Think about the, we all know people who have been through those treatments Mm. and the horror that they go through. Uh, It almost seems like the, the, the medicine is making them sicker than the disease. Think about technology really changing that. So I, I turning that around to jobs, we do not have nearly the talent in the simulation space to build those models, Mm. to ask the right questions. So it it includes both new talent being trained to uh, create those simulations, but also a reskilling of the healthcare professions in my latter example. You know, how do they really make use of those technologies? Because the developers are going to have a precursory knowledge of healthcare vocabulary. You know what I mean? So that they can ask the, and they'll know some anatomy so that they can do and some physiology so that they can make the model. But the real professionals who are working with those patients and doing the medical stuff, they're, they're the experts, but how do they get a base knowledge and simulation so that they can really use it to the best degree? So I gave you two examples in manufacturing and in healthcare, but I think uh, this idea of simulation is going to be such a game changer in jobs every day. And certainly I hope that education is able to use that as an education tool, as well as a, an end of the education, you know, both a means to the end and the actual mm-hmm. end. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. Well, that's encouraging because a lot of our guests have talked about simulation a lot. Yeah, we should all get skilled up in that area, it sounds like. That's, I mean, look, I think, I think if there's one thing that we take away from all of these great stories that we, that we get is that lifelong learning, which we've all talked about, and it's become almost overused in mm-hmm. everybody's vocabulary, is the reality now. There is just no way, regardless of how intelligent you are, what kinds of technical programs you go to, or what kinds of academic programs you go to at the best university. You will only, when you leave that university, you really have to understand that the shelf life of your skill level is so much shorter than it's ever been in the past, that you're gonna constantly be retraining and reskilling either at your own initiative or at the, you know, at the push of your employer. And do you see more and more employers initiating these obligatory training programs? Oh, I, I think it's a business uh, 
issue right now. You know, mm. before it was, you know, I would train you in the new software, I would train you in the new product line. Uh, when I was an employer, now I know that I have to be looking not just for this quarter, but I need to be looking into the next 18 months, into the next 36 months mm. to try to figure out what the skills you will need will be to, to compete, to make sure I'm profitable and that I'm productive as a business. I'm going to have to look at your skills as a real business imperative now. And I think we're seeing that across employers. The, you know, I, I, when we spoke last week, I was at Concordia and got the opportunity to be not just with people from the U S which is working nation space, but with people from around the world and everyone, was saying the same thing. Mm. You know, the, the accelerated pace of change is changing not only the way we do business and the way we learn, but how we think about doing business and how we think about education. So uh, it's no longer going to be sufficient to take four years to get to where we want to be. We're going to have to be able to stack things and come back and forth into education. I, I actually don't think there are many of our educational systems that are ready for the pressure that lifelong learning is going to put on them. Um, and just a very quick final bonus question. Are there any kind of um, books or other people that you find super inspiring that you kind of have returned back to uh, in, in this area? So either books or other people that you follow on Twitter or other people that you've had conversations with that have been impactful on your on, the, on sort of your own thinking in this space? Well, I really think there's some tremendous work being done here in the States by the Federal Reserve Banks. They're doing some very interesting work in this, mm -hmm. particularly with making sure we keep people out of poverty by keeping them working. Uh, I think, you know, you mentioned McKinsey. I would also add, you know, Accenture's doing some wonderful work on the future of work. I love what the business round table is doing. And I really think here in the United States, uh, the Business Higher Ed Forum is mm. doing wonderful work, bringing large companies together with large universities. But again, I would have to say that all all implementation innovation, all the real solutions are being done at local areas. So I always look a little bit to government, to the local mayors and the mm. governors here in the States. And I, I would be interested to see if it's the same everywhere else. Those are the people who are really making implementation work at the local level and they're being held accountable because they, they see actually the people for whom it's either working or failed to work. So I think that's a great point to end on. Um, and if people want to find out more about your work, Jane, what's the best way for them to go about doing that? Oh, I would love them to come and visit our website, workingnation.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter at the same at the same hashtag and on LinkedIn. We'd love to hear your audience's stories. And certainly we, we know we can all learn from each other. And I really believe, Sophie, that we have to learn uh, from each other. We have to work together on this. We are all in this change together. Jane, thank you so much. And uh, we'll send this over when it's edited. Great. Thank you, Sophie, so okay. much. That's all for this week. Thanks so much, Jane, and for UFI Voctech Trust for supporting. A few messages before we part this week. UFI has supported a few projects during the coronavirus which might be of interest. First up, the Professional Association for Childcare and Early Years has recently launched a new continuing professional development uh, platform with funding from UFI Voctech Trust. 
The EY Smart Platform is a free online training resource that offers short 10-minute courses that can be done on any device at any time. If that's not for you, what about the Association of Colleges, which will carry out research into colleges' current capacity to enable high-quality distance learning with support from UFI Voctec Trust. Findings from the research will be used to create a post-COVID edtech strategy for the college sector that leaves no learner behind. And that comes at a time of interest uh, in the UK further education sector with rumours of uh, the government nationalising colleges. So let's see what materialises there. If you're transitioning from online learning or training, UFI have also been running a series of how-to webinars. All links, etc. on our website with our show notes. Uh, And finally, if you're homeschooling and polishing up your math skills to show off to your kids... You'll be pleased to know it's National Numeracy Day on the 13th of May. Um, Go to numeracyday.com for all the extras. For more links, news and industry bits, sign up to our newsletter and read the Caught Our Ear section. That's all for now. Take care, look after one another and goodbye. Goodbye.